You're listening to Sermons at FCC Moorhead, a podcast of sermons preached at First Christian Church in Moorhead, Kentucky. A congregation in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ tradition, we are a faith community seeking to live out Christ's call of hospitality and shalom. I'm Reverend Nancy Galler, minister at FCC, and each week we'll post the latest sermon preached from our pulpit. Most weeks you'll hear my voice, but from time to time you'll find guest preachers on this podcast too. Thanks for listening. We had some technical difficulties in the sanctuary today, and so I'm offering you my sermon for today's gospel reading from home. Now, the last thing you want to do is argue with Jesus. It's Jesus, after all, and we're disciples of Christ. It's in our name. So to argue with Jesus is not a good look. But these words in today's gospel, therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. These words are so hard. We cringe. We squirm in our seats. You may be thinking that maybe it's a good time to go into the kitchen and pour yourself some coffee. And maybe by the time you get back in, I will have gotten through this hard part and skipped down to the cute story that follows with Jesus cuddling babies and embracing all the children. But the words are there. There's no getting around them. And even more so, there's no way to escape the reality that these words have been used as weapons. Weapons against both people who have experienced divorce and as cudgels to guilt individuals into staying in unhealthy and dangerous relationships. It remains a shameful part of the church's legacy. We have inflicted so much pain. These words we know have been used to exclude divorced folks from full fellowship in many congregations. I have friends who were no longer allowed to serve as deacons in their churches because of a divorce. There are folks who have been told once they were divorced, they could never remarry. The punitive enforcement of these words have been used to imprison battered spouses in physically abusive marriages because their faith community valued the idea of marriage over the life and the well-being of the person. And those who do choose divorce carry the pain of that experience with them. And rather than be a place of support and healing, too often the church has added to that pain weighing down already hurting people with guilt or shame over the dissolution of their marriages. And while it's difficult to get good numbers on divorce rates in the United States, most experts agree that the chances of a marriage ending a divorce is now around 39%. 
when I first preached on this passage from Mark's gospel, I had just started my third month of serving a congregation and I hadn't even preached 10 sermons yet, but I had already met enough folks to know the difficulty the passage brings into people's lives. And I knew from my own family too, we had been touched by the brokenness of divorce. My father's parents divorced when he was a toddler, and that left lasting marks on my dad. And as children, visiting grandparents on the holidays meant being dragged to three different homes all on Christmas Day. When I was preaching on this passage, my brother's marriage of over 20 years was breaking up. And now, 21 years later, I come to this story no longer just as a friend or family member or a pastor giving support to others in their divorces, but I come to it as a woman who is divorced. And the awareness of the raw emotions these words of Jesus can evoke is now personal. And I want to acknowledge this openly as we approach this text. Most of us are painfully aware of the wounds which may linger when these words from Jesus are heard. So let's be gentle with one another and with ourselves as we consider this passage from Mark's gospel. Now there's a clue in the beginning of this story which may help us find our way through. Our reading begins, some Pharisees came and to test Jesus, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, we may hesitate to argue with Jesus, but Pharisees had no problem getting into debates with him. You'd be forgiven if you thought it was their favorite pastime. It seems at every turn in the Gospel of Mark, some religious leaders are hatching up a plan to trap Jesus. It may be the Pharisees or the scribes, or sometimes the Pharisees join up with the Herodians, and they're scheming all of them to get Jesus to say something controversial or to break a religious law in public, which could go viral, we might say nowadays. So we find them as they question Jesus, eating with tax collectors, or they challenged him healing on the Sabbath, or they criticized his lack of observance of religious purity laws, or they pushed him to show them a sign. Each confrontation occurs in the hopes of Jesus making a mistake in public, of being discredited before the people, of losing face and being dishonored. So here they are again, and they ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, mind you, they're not asking because they don't know. They know. They knew the law of Moses backward and forwards. All a man had to do was to draw up papers, swear he no longer wished to be married, and voila, he's divorced. The grounds for divorce were broad in Deuteronomy 24. For example, if a woman does not please the man because he finds something objectionable about her, or if he simply dislikes her now, divorce is permitted. 
Women, on the other hand, had little legal recourse. They were treated in many ways as other property the man might possess. Deuteronomy was clear. There were grounds for divorce. It was lawful, at least for men. They had the right to divorce a woman. And Jesus knew that. So did the Pharisees. So why did they ask? Why ask such a simple, straightforward question for which they already knew the answer? We should take note here that the last time Mark refers to the lawfulness of something was back in chapter 6, verse 18. And there John the Baptist tells King Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Ah, do you see? It's a trap. The Pharisees asked Jesus not a religious question or even a legal one, but a political question. There'd been a scandal. Herod had divorced his wife in order to marry another woman, who, in order to marry Herod, had divorced her husband, Philip, who just happened to be Herod's brother. You got that? This was the ancient world's version of tabloid fodder. Everybody was talking about it. So what the Pharisees are doing here is trying to goad Jesus into condemning the actions of Herod. Why? Maybe because the last prophet to condemn the divorces and remarriage was John the Baptist, whose head, you might remember, ended up on a banquet platter. If they could just provoke Jesus into saying something politically controversial, a similar fate might befall him. It's a minefield that they have laid out for Jesus. And as he treads carefully in response, he says, Tell me, what did Moses command you? Which forces them to answer, Well, Moses said it was okay. A man can be displeased with his wife for burning the toast and file the paperwork that day. The reality is, scholars are unsure on exactly what first century Jewish norms were for divorce. We know Mosaic law gave men rights to divorce. The rights for women are a little unclear in practice. Now, they could have been influenced by other cultural norms around them. It's very well possible. In fact, when we look at Jesus's teaching to his disciples on divorce just later on, after this conflict with the Pharisees, there seems to be an acceptance of a Roman context in which either party in a marriage could legally declare a divorce. And the author of Mark's gospel was probably writing from Rome. In fact, Roman marriage contracts, some of which have survived, have what we might call prenuptial agreements, which stated that the property a woman brings to a marriage, and then also stated what she will take with her if the marriage dissolves. It helps, I think, to understand Jesus's answer is to a question which is crafty and crassly political. The Pharisees don't care for a moment about divorce. They're not concerned about the fallout from a broken marriage. 
the emotional carnage it brings. They don't care that divorce would likely put a woman in a most vulnerable position socially and economically. They don't care about the well-being of any children in the family. They're playing a political game, callously disregarding the human toll divorce may bring, and their end game is to find a way to silence Jesus. Which means, in the context of Mark's gospel, Jesus' words here are not first pastoral words, but instead they're part of a public performance, a jousting match of wits with the religious leaders. And his words are aimed at those who would use the tragedy of divorce for their own gain of power or influence. Jesus directly confronts these religious teachers. He says, why would Moses do this? Because of the hardness of your hearts. He wrote this commandment for you. And Jesus makes the move then from the law of Moses, the traditional laws and regulations created to help order society and clearly mindful of the human brokenness and the failures of society. And then Jesus moves from that and points to what he sees as the grand design of God for the world. What Matthew Fox calls the original blessings of God for human beings and for all creation. God intended human relationships to be rich and full, to be connections which enable individuals to flourish, to be their true selves, to live in joy and wholeness, to become no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Those are still hard words, aren't they? Even knowing this is a verbal jousting match Jesus is involved in, a political trap for him, it's still difficult. They're hard words, and they come on the heels of many difficult sayings of Jesus. In the final verses of chapter 9, right before this encounter, Jesus says, If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. And same with your foot. Cut it off. It's better to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. Better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye. Now, if we were taking those words literally, we'd have a lot more one-eyed, one-handed folks hopping around on one leg in our sanctuaries, wouldn't we? And yet, historically, the church has taken the words on marriage literally, but these teachings that come right before them we read them as exaggeration. When Jesus says, therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate, he knows full well that relationships around him had failed, that the painful separation of married folk had happened and would happen again and again. Jesus, however, pulls the conversation in an unexpected direction, looking at not what is legal, or about what rights the man had to divorce, or whether Jewish or Roman marriages and divorce practices were the correct ones, nor even about the status of Herod's second marriage to his divorced sister-in-law. Jesus takes a breath and says, 
Remember that story you learned as a child? That a long, long time ago, there was a garden planted by God, designed by God for goodness. Do you remember that? That God created humanity and there God designed humankind for relationships, intended for humans to flourish in partnerships with other human beings, to live in harmony with one another and with all living creatures. You remember that story? It was God's intention for human beings to come together in marriage as soulmates. In our reading from Genesis, God states that it is not good for the human to be alone. I shall make a sustainer beside him. The word that's translated as sustainer is the word that King James translates as helpmeet or helpmate. And helpmate has a subservient connotation to it, a helper, not a partner. Reflecting, I think, the understandings of marriage in early 17th century England. But the Hebrew word ezer does not have a lower designation. Translating it as sustainer reveals that the Hebrew word has an active meaning. It's often used with a military context of intervening on behalf of someone. And in fact, God is often described with the very same word as a sustainer of human beings. Jesus is pointing to God's dream for human couples, and it's one of intimacy, companionship, and connection with each person advocating and supporting the other. Is it lawful? Jesus is saying is the wrong question. That's the question of the religious leaders seeking a political strategic advantage. But asking, is it lawful, misses the point. Its effect is to push us away from God, reinforcing the patriarchal system which gave rights to men and left women in a precarious place. That left us separated with guilt and shame. Divorce occurs. It occurs in the midst of our brokenness. And those of us who have experienced divorce know it is not a decision taken lightly. The hurts are real and deep. For some, the experience is predominantly destructive. For others, there's a profound sense of release. For many, it's a mixture of both. Couples divorcing need help and support. They need ways to express gratitude for the good, lament for the brokenness, sorrow for the futures and the dreams deeply held which now will be unrealized. They need healthy ways to release bitterness, to express regret, to cope with fear, to navigate choices and to move toward wholeness and healing. Which brings us to the second story in our gospel reading. In our weekly Vespers on Zoom this year, we've been making our way through the gospel of Mark. And as we considered the story of Jesus blessing the children, we reflected upon a work of art by Cranach the Elder. He was a 15th century artist trained in Vienna, working in Wittenberg, and a close friend of Martin Luther. In fact, he and his wife were witnesses at Luther's wedding, and they were godfathers for each other's children. 
he seems to be the first artist to paint this scene outside of illustrations for personal prayer books. And he painted over 20 versions of it. In his depiction, we see Christ at the center, women and children crowding around him, and Jesus is active and engaged, holding a baby in one arm, his hand on another one's belly, and children climbing over his back. And then over in the corner, you see disgruntled old men, their faces and their bodies showing clear disapproval at the women and all the children mobbing Jesus. Now, there's no sound in this painting, but imagine if there were. What beautiful chaos it must have been. The disciples are all riled up. They do their best to discourage the women. The text says they speak sternly to the children and those bringing them. The word translated as sternly in other places in the gospel is translated as rebuke. So we have a very harsh connotation of this word. We find Jesus rebuking the waves of the sea. He rebukes demons. He rebukes Peter when Peter rejects Jesus's own prediction of his death. And in response, Jesus is indignant. Let the children come, he says. There will be no exclusion in the kingdom of God. Those who are discounted are pushed away no more. If you look closely in the painting, you'll see there's an apple in the baby's hand just to the side of Jesus. It's a very Lutheran nod to the story of human brokenness. Here, I think if we look behind the question and at the actions of Jesus, beautifully depicted by Cranach the Elder, we can see in this glorious cacophony of babies and children, the priorities of God revealed. God's dream for humanity, God's dream for all creation is in restoring relationships. God's priorities are to nurture wholeness, a community which embodies inclusion and welcome, a blessing to the discounted of the great joy of human living and flourishing. Those who prey on division, those who seek after power, they ask the question, is it lawful? But Jesus brings to us the question of God's dream for us. Not is it lawful, but does it bring healing? Is this a place where God is at work, making beautiful things out of all the brokenness in our lives? Are we a community in which the wounded are being made whole? That's where the realm of God is found, in the binding up of sorrows, in the reconciliation of divisions, in the hope of God's shalom for all the earth. May we, the church, be that community of blessing, a community of restoration and of joy restored. Thanks for listening. We hope you found inspiration today. To learn more about our congregation, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, be well, be kind, and always be the church 
where you are.